Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show, a podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Ezra Klein, and my guest this week is Bill Gurley. Uh, Bill is a general partner at Benchmark, uh, one of Silicon Valley's really legendary venture capital firms, and he is one of Silicon Valley's really legendary venture capitalists. He was named the Venture Capitalist of the Year in 2016 at the TechCrunch's annual Crunchy Awards. He's been an early investor in Grubhub and OpenTable and Uber and Zillow and all kinds of things. Very, very smart guy, very thoughtful guy. And we've been talking recently because he's been thinking a lot about healthcare. Uh, and, and they've recently made uh, some investments in that space. And the reason I wanted to have him on was that we have been having this conversation in Washington about how do you reform the healthcare system? What would a better healthcare system look like? What would a cheaper healthcare system look like? And it is a very narrow conversation. It is had from a very policy-oriented perspective. What can we write into a law? And it is <laughs> made by people who I think often have a pretty limited set of uh, views and experiences on the topic. So Gurley's been attacking this from another perspective, that, that of the entrepreneur. Where can you actually enter the system? Where can somebody come in and make something better and make some money off of it? And, and he's been working on this now for a couple of years. So I thought this would be a good uh, way to sort of think about this from a broader perspective. Think about what is possible and what isn't. You'll hear and hear uh, that Bill and I have somewhat different views on this. Uh, I am pretty skeptical of consumer-driven healthcare systems. I think that is not what people want in healthcare, and as such, it is not what we are going to get. But but he has a different view, and I think and I think an interesting one. Talk a lot about the Singaporean healthcare system, which has become uh, definitely an obsession of mine. He talks about his view that maybe democracy and capitalism are just going to eat each other alive. We should be looking at China for the real innovations now. So this is a it's a fun, interesting conversation. I like healthcare a lot. I talk more than I, I typically try to, even though I typically talk a lot in this podcast, but I hope you enjoy it anyway. Before we jump into it, um, a quick couple of plugs. Check out my other podcast, The Weeds, uh, which also has a great discussion of the Singaporean healthcare system. You can download The Weeds live episode for that. And my colleague at Vox, Todd Vanderwerf, our critic at large, has a great new podcast called I Think You're Interesting. He has an interview with a bunch of the Samantha B writers recently. Uh, that is a great interview. And I think if you're into the folks I'm talking to, you will be into that one. Again, that is I Think You're Interesting by Todd Vanderwerf. You can get it wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Uh, but without further ado, here is Bill Gurley. Bill Gurley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. Appreciate it. So when we talked recently, you told me that you've been on a multi-year learning deep dive on healthcare. Tell me a bit about that. What what got you interested and in, in how have you been studying the system? Great. So our firm's been fortunate enough to be an investor in numerous what people call marketplaces. I think it started with eBay, but then we got into more vertical specific ones like Zillow or Grubhub or OpenTable and Uber that I'm on the board of. And when you've had some successful marketplace investing, you start to say, okay, well, what are the biggest segments of our economy? And is there an opportunity to do something similar against those different industries? And one that kind of stands out like a sore thumb is, is healthcare just because it's risen to whatever the latest number is, 17 or 18% of GDP. And then the other thing, you know, that's pretty obvious, I think, for any entrepreneur, you say, wow, look, there's a lot of room for disruption. And the reason people come to that kind of natural conclusion is because they see waste or they see inefficiency or they see a lack of transparency. And these are areas where digital tools have had an impact on other industries. And so I think the core thesis is one that's almost, you know, tautological that, oh, yeah, you should be able to use these technologies, smartphones, websites, the Internet, 
um, transparency, pricing aggregation reviews and have some type of impact. Um, but that's really just the starting point. And that's when I uh, put out a tweet three years ago and started meeting with, with digital healthcare startups. What, what, what was that tweet? Oh, I, I think I said I, I'm interested in looking at digital healthcare startups and created an email that was, I think, healthcare at benchmark.com and, and just kind of opened the floodgates on purpose. Did, I, did, I, you, did you get interesting responses to that? I did. And I should caveat that there are a number of great venture firms that get really focused on things like like biotechnology and drugs and pharma and we're not going to do that. Benchmark's historically been a tech-based startup. So I've, I, I've been mostly looking at ways that digital technologies could impact the healthcare system, not at products or, or drugs or things like that. So tell me a little bit about the learning journey that emerged from this. What, what did you learn that surprised you? Yeah. And, you know, there's a there's this um, interesting theory people have that you're, the first part of your learning, you, you're actually confidence of what you know actually drops instead of rises. And I certainly went down that curve. And um, I, I would say it probably wasn't till I was two years into the process that I even had confidence um, to write a check to make a make a decision as a venture capitalist, because the first couple of years, all I learned um you know, was shocking and confusing and, and, and realizing that it was very different from a normal world. I got very lucky early on because someone introduced me to a book by David Goldhill called Catastrophic Care. Um, and what's interesting about the book is David's an outsider. His, his father got, unfortunately, into a really bad incident involving the healthcare system, and he went deep. You know, he, he runs the Game Show Network. It's, he's a really odd person to write a healthcare book. Uh, but he wrote a fascinating book and I think uncovered all the things about the U.S. healthcare system that kind of undermine its success. Um, and he's done podcasts and stuff. I'd urge you to check out his stuff. Some of the big things that come up, you know, I first and foremost say it's not a, it's not a competitive market. I think people have the perspective, especially, and I, 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 I'll opine on Washington for a second because I think a lot of people that write healthcare policy, they think it's an open market, but you really don't have, you know, the consumer's not, doesn't know price when it makes a decision. The consumer's not the payer. The payer is the employer. You know, the employer's in the system for what reason exactly? And it, it's super complex. The, the way people get paid, the way people make decisions, and completely different from every other industry in North America. Um, so that creates a ton, a ton of problems. Um, and, you know, there's no price transparency. That's another big one. I think the, the current system is, is self-reinforcing. It's getting bigger and bigger because of the way the dynamics, you know, bounce against one another. That, that would require a deeper dive to explain. Well, we're, we're a pretty deep dive place, but maybe okay. I can unpack a little bit of that for, for folks who I think maybe there's a little shorthand there, which is that healthcare has emerged in this very weird way in America where you tend to have third-party payers. And so in between you and the healthcare system, say you have your employer, right? I get my healthcare insurance through Vox Media, so I actually don't know the cost of my healthcare. And, and um, let's talk about the government. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. So it, I, I did some research. I wouldn't have known this innately, but like we're one of the only countries in the G20 where the employer's involved. And, you know, 
you, you say, well, why? Well, it's like a he... weird World War II tax yes, pork. Yes, yes. So in, in coming out of World War II, the president was was definitely afraid of inflation. And so there was mandated wage restriction. You couldn't increase wages. And that was mandated by the government. And so people started throwing in benefits. And lo and behold, here we are 70 years later, and we get our health care from our employer. Uh, we don't get laundry services. We don't get our lawn mower. We don't, we don't buy clothes through our employer. Although I guess in, in tech, <laughs> sometimes you do get your laundry done over there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think that's being weaned off. Um, sure. But, but yeah, we've got this extra person involved for, for no reason. And, and of course, a lot of the problems stem from that. So I I tend to agree with this, but there are two ways of looking at it. One is a way that my conservative friends often look at it. So I, I virtually every healthcare expert I know agrees that that tax break, moving the system to the employer, is the original sin of American healthcare policy. That every like almost every bad thing flows from right there. My conservative friends look at that and they say, well. If we hadn't done that, maybe we could have a real market-based, patient-centered, consumer-driven system. And my liberal friends look at that and they say, if we had not created this halfway measure of health security, we would have what every other country has, what seems to work well in other places, which is a government-run system where health protection insurance is guaranteed in some way or another, the, the exact structures differ, but by the state. And this is, I think, a, an, an interesting divergent branching because Goldhill, who wrote that great Atlantic article and then and then his book, which I do recommend people read, sort of takes it in that other direction. He he says, you know, if we didn't have that, then maybe we could really shop for healthcare the way we shop for TVs, the way we shop for food, the way we shop for furniture, and the system would meet our needs as consumers, and and that would be great. And, and a lot of people argue that point. So so talk to me a little bit about how you came to the view that, or or whether you hold the view that. That is what we need, that a consumer-centered healthcare system is actually a good thing as opposed to a category error of some kind. So, you know, our system, which is the highest in the world as a percentage of GDP, has the illusion of the free market, the illusion of being highly regulated, and the apparent benefit of neither. And so, you know, my answer to, to what you just said is, you know, we have a faux marketplace right now. And I think there's tons of data that says making it more competitive, a la Singapore, would be better, or making it single payer, you know, a la a bunch of other countries, would be better. And I have to agree with both of those assertions. It, what is what seems obvious is the current state of our system is not the right answer. Well, well, that I certainly agree with. I, I want to put a pin in Singapore and, and come back to it. Okay, but. So let, let's talk about David Goldhill for a minute. Um, and it's been a it's been a minute since I read his work, but he believes that we should have a system that is built around catastrophic care, very, very, very high deductible catastrophic care. I mean, he talks at, at times about tens of thousands of dollars of deductible. And the the question I want to pose to you is maybe the reason healthcare evolves in this different way is that it's not a normal good in the way people treat it. That as, as a society, we are okay with the idea that you can't purchase a television. We're okay with the idea that you can't purchase a um, nice couch. But we're not okay with the idea on some fundamental level that you get cancer and you can't pay for care, or even lower than that, that you break your leg and you can't get it put in a cast by a reputable doctor. And that what people are looking for in healthcare, and, and I think this often foils the market, 
is security above all, where in other places they're willing to take risk, they're willing to take chances. And I, I think something that keeps becoming a problem for various sort of consumer-driven uh, initiatives here is that people demand a level of security and predictability and reliability out of healthcare that keeps them from being able to sort of walk out of a doctor's office and say no, or keeps them from being willing to accept the consequences of a market, which after all rely to some degree on scarcity. Yeah. Well, two, I have two initial reactions to that. One, the more I read about people coming up with solutions for healthcare, a lot of times I see, you know, someone that believes in one answer demonizing the other. And we end up just doing neither because we're pointing fingers back and forth. And so I could see an argument for having some price controls and more competition. Like, I, I don't know that these things have to be at odds with one another. So that'd be my first assertion. The second thing I would say is there are there's certainly an argument that competition can drive quality and results, like, and price. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be true that that having more competition will lead to some type of worse outcome versus not having it. In fact, a lot of people, you know, believe that the way, you know, you get to um, higher and higher efficiencies is through that competitive process. And I would point to the thing that's most frequently commented on in this type of conversation, which is LASIK, right? Where um, the, the price and execution of LASIK today, which is, is, typically bought not through insurance, but bought by people as a uh, competitive good, you know, has been driven down and down and down. They're shining a laser in your eye. This, is, <laughs> this isn't like super simple. Um, and it, arguably it's much safer today than when they first started. Yeah, LASIK is such a fascinating example and, 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 and people bring it up and I, I think you're right to focus on it. It has a couple of qualities that I'd be curious to, to hear how you, how you think about them. One is that it it is optional, right? I have glasses and I think a lot about getting LASIK and, and I am just squeamish about getting a laser <laughs> cut into my eye. Yeah. And, and so I haven't done it, um, which is different than, say, cardiovascular health treatment. Absolutely. Uh, there is a, a quality of being able to say no and being able to shop around and being able to do things on your timetable that, that really matters here. But the other thing that I think is interesting there, because here's where I think possibly you know liberals can take this argument too far. There are a lot of pieces of the healthcare market or healthcare services that could be pulled out like LASIK. And one thing that some places, and, and I think when we get to Singapore, we can talk more about this too, is you know primary care can be treated very, very differently than um, – more specialty care, more catastrophic uh, or chronic disease care. And so I think one of the questions that the, the LASIK example brings up is, are there ways to cut the healthcare system up a little bit differently? Are there ways for more things to be pulled out of the third-party payer model and it's something you get through HSAs or some, you know, there's some other way of making it affordable for more people, but because it has this optional um, asynchronous quality to it, uh, we can expose it more to market forces without saying at the moment you do that, that that also means if you get cancer and you can't pay for it, you're out of luck. Right. Well, look, I think I think that the high deductible plans do that somewhat and that if you're having cardiovascular work or if you have a premature birth, you're, you're over that cap, right? You're into that system. 
um, and things that are going to live underneath that are going to be more of your primary care. I, I think about 50% of our market is acute care and about 50% is primary care. And so maybe the place, and I think it's, that makes a lot of sense, right? The place where competition um, and hopefully consumerization, and when I use that word, I meant I mean providers that care about the consumer experience, that can, that can happen down in this primary care bucket, which is half of the system. So this is, I think, a good moment to go a little bit back to your story. There's, there's a lot I want to follow up on here, but I also want to want to track what, what you've been doing. So you went through a couple of years where, you know, initially you looked at this and said, this market is nuts. This system doesn't make any sense. Um, I'm not sure there is a way to expose it to entrepreneurship or there is an inlet for you. What began to convince you that something was changing or that there was an opening? What what was sort of the crack in the, the armor for you? Do you mind if I – can I go back and – I want to talk about a couple of the things that I saw because I think it's important for everybody. Yeah, to that's totally I, – I, I do not believe in linear conversations. Okay. The, the first one is um, to really understand how big hospitals and big insurance carriers and big employers are all feeding on one another to make the system worse and worse and worse. And the way the system's designed, it's just instinctive for them to do this. So most large hospital systems are getting as big as they possibly can. Stanford here in our backyard um, is gathering up general practitioners, specialists. They're, they're literally getting as many people into their system as they possibly can. And you can drive 30 or 40 miles from the Stanford campus and you'll see a new hospital up, going up with the Stanford name on it. Um, and you say to yourself, well, why are they getting bigger? Well, there's two things. It gives them leverage with the carrier, but also if their footprint's that big, no employer around here is going to want a narrow network plan that doesn't have Stanford hospital system in it. And so you see this kind of, and, and by the way, like, you know, if you are a startup that wants to sell to an individual general practitioner, you should know that they're, they're actually on the wane. There's fewer and fewer individuals. They're all getting sucked into these big systems, partially because they don't want to go through the struggle of, of getting paid. And if they can be a part of this big system, then they're going to have much easier time getting paid because that system has more leverage with the carriers and the employers. And it turns out if you go deep on pricing, you know, if you open a Castlight app and you look at these large hospital systems, you will see – over and over again, and this has been written in a number of the articles I'm sure you've read, an eight-to-one delta in pricing. You know, eight-to-one versus the low end of the market. And that's like, it's unbelievable, right? Someone can charge $3,200 for an MRI when you could get it for $400. And by the way, if your general practitioner gets pulled into one of these big systems, they're going to recommend you get your imaging at that system. And you wonder can, can how. I, can I hold... Let me push you on one question about this, Bill, because I think this is fascinating. So we've done a lot of work with the Castlight data and agree. I actually completely agree with the larger point that all the pricing is crazy. But there is this kind of thing in healthcare where people get really shocked that MRIs cost different amounts in different places. But we're not shocked by that in cars. We're not shocked by that. I mean, you know, you can go into San Francisco and you can buy a burger at McDonald's for a buck and you can go then a couple blocks down and buy a burger for $27. So w tell me what it is that shocked you about that. Because you're a guy who, you know, like you're in the business world, like yep. people price differentiate all the time. Sure. Like isn't Stanford just giving you better MRIs? Wouldn't that be their argument? Do you believe that? 
no, but okay. uh, I want you to say it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, but Look, I think it, I think it they're, could they're be all it's buying, conceptually they're all buying, possible. They're buying the equipment. They're not making the equipment. They're buying the imaging equipment. They're just running you through it. Um, no, I, I mean, I don't believe that the reason that is 8X priced is because it's 8X better. I do not believe that. Um, I believe it's 8X priced because they can charge it. So, so you think what's happening is a kind of you think this is the power of concentration that these systems are getting big enough that it is just easier for the third party payer to pay them off than to turn around and say to their employees say right for for Vox Media said to me hey i know you want to go to the dominant hospital system in your area but we decided it was too expensive and now you can't well and and look this is part of where getting the employer out of the game might be helpful right um, I think narrow networks um, play a really important or they, they represent a really important opportunity to get pricing down. Um, but if you if you talk to a benefits provider at a large company and I did this as part of my process, I probably had 10 or 15 meetings with these benefits providers. First of all, none of them want to be in this game. Like <laughs> this is the most reluctant uh <laughs> task that any company has to do. They, they do not want to be in this game. They're forced into it. Second, um, their number one task as an employer is to not lose competitive situations for new employees because their benefits aren't good enough. Like the number of companies who are maybe self-insured that are willing to push the edge in terms of trying to redefine cost. I bet you is 10 or 20. You know, you heard about the Safeway story, probably remarkable outlier. Like they're just not going to, they're not going to go break their pick to redefine the system um, from where they sit. They, they, they don't have the authority within the organization to make that their missive. Does that make sense? So, yeah, but this is so interesting. I'd like you to hold on it for a minute because I, I think this is important to what should be the central mystery of all this? So in some stylized model of the American healthcare system, what you might say is, okay, insure individuals do not pay for their own care and they do not have full incentives to bring down the cost of their own care. I mean, they have some incentive, but 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 they're a little bit insulated. Uh, but employers sure as hell do. And employers, they have these whole HR departments. So they have all this information and all this expertise, and they even have more negotiating leverage than an individual does. You could really imagine a world in which employers were more efficient, not less efficient, at getting good costs on insurance, on negotiating better prices. I mean, they have the expertise, and they have the incentive, and they have the size, and yet we don't see this world. And and it, it to some degree, is one of the persistent mysteries in, in the healthcare system. But a little bit like you're saying, I mean, this is in the HR department. And the HR department does not want everybody screaming and yelling. And then the CEO comes and says, what the fuck? Why is everybody so mad at me? That's right. I think it's a complete myth. I think it's a myth that most employers want to drive down costs. They, you know, the easy thing for them to pick off is apparently premature births and heart attacks can account for like 40% of their bill for a self-insured employer. So they will do things to try and preempt those two events because they're so large. But like generally driving down cost, if it means sacrificing employee satisfaction, they will not do it. And so it, there's a large number of, I think, 
people in the general populace that think employers are going to drive down costs, the self-insured one. And there's a ton of entrepreneurs that think it. And from my conversations with these benefits providers, I think it's a myth. So, and, and one thing I think is interesting there too, is that you would also assume that employers would want to get out of this market. You just talked about how reluctant um, some of these negotiators are, but in health policy, consistently what you hear people say that, uh, and it's like, it's Lucy in the football every time. The reason employers ultimately, they may not want to be in the market, just like they may not want to pay high costs, but what they really don't want to do is piss off their employees. And moving, pulling out of the market and not giving them insurance anymore pisses them off. Oh, absolutely. Um, if, if you if you were to ask them a different question, which is, what if the government mandated all employers get out of the business? Would you prefer that? They would all say yes. Everyone. No. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you here. Okay. They could do that. Like, look, the the Chamber of Commerce could lobby for single payer. They don't do that. The NFIB could lobby for a single payer. There was a couple of years ago the Wyden Bennett bill, which really did a version of that. Um, and, and employers were against it. I mean, th- this is why I say like this is the Lucian football of healthcare policy. That's presenting the argument in a very specific way where you're forcing them to opt into something else instead of just opting out. I, I just I, based on the conversations I've had with these people, if if they if the or even CEOs, you know, might be a better way to say if you didn't if we snapped our fingers and in America the employer was no longer part of the healthcare system, would you be okay with that? I think they would all say yes. But but why don't they? I mean, if you've had these conversations, if employers were pushing for what we have in every other country, which is a system the government runs and employers aren't part of, we would have had that system a long time ago. Do they say why they don't then say to the representative, "Hey, like quietly, go 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 work with Bernie on that Medicare for all thing"? Fair enough. I I haven't gone that deep. I just haven't met a single one of them that that finds it to be awesome to be in this role. Yeah, uh, well, I think I definitely think it's not awesome. So, okay, so you 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 worked on this. So there, you have the employer problem. Um, what else? What was? Well, there's other things like like people think carriers want to drive down costs, and I haven't seen a ton of proof of that either because that involves ruffling feathers. You know, it involves you know upsetting one of these large hospital care systems, right? If you start pushing narrow networks that they're not in. Um, and they make a percentage of the overall pie. So as long as the pie is growing as a percentage of GDP, it's a pretty good place. Um, and so I don't think they have much incentive either. So there's a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs saying, oh, they carry, I'm going to help the carrier bring down cost or I'm going to help the employer bring down cost. And I don't think the incentives really exist. Um, and then there's weird stuff like one the thing that, that kind of is just most shocking to me that I think most of – I'd be – surprised if most of your listeners have ever even heard of and may not even believe when I say it is in in 2009 as part of the reinvestment act we we our government made the decision to pay 20 billion dollars to doctors to implement software it's just fascinating especially from a silicon valley perspective like would anyone ever do that it's so radical like we're going to pay people who are clearly closer to the 1%, the top 1% than, than anything else. Money, and it's 44K each to implement software. It's just, it's crazy. You're talking here about electronic health records. Yes. It's just yeah. like, like, well, first of all, why do you need to pay them or why do you think you need to pay them? Uh, well, part of the reason is because there aren't enough market forces to, to demand that they implement them in the first place. Every other, no, 
you don't have to pay Cisco to put an ERP system in. Like, like they have to do it to be competitive. Like, to- and it still didn't work. <laughs> we actually, so my colleague and I, Sarah Cliff, interviewed President Obama uh, as one of his last interviews about healthcare, and we asked him what were what were his regrets, uh, what what did not work, and he one of the things he named was EHR adoption had not been what they had hoped, despite the fact that they spent a lot of money on it. I can't. Be- well, I the only reason I can believe that it happened is because the only executive on his advisory committee was the CEO of Epic Software, the largest EHR vendor out there. And if you go back and study which company was was benefited the most from that program, it was Epic. And so, like, that's the only reason I can believe that it happened. But it makes no sense whatsoever. If if you were going to pay somebody to put in software, what would you worry about? You'd worry about that maybe they don't use it. So they then paid on top of the 44K, 17K or something like that. If you could verify that you're using this software that they already paid you to buy, it's like, as I learned it, I was just agape. My mouth was like, I can't believe someone tried this. Like, it, it, it's prone to failure by design. But if you're, if you're out there trying to compete in that market, you know, back at that time, all the software vendors had tons of content, web pages, YouTube videos about what? how to qualify for your payment. So, so rather than working on software, they're developing web pages and, and probably holding events, teaching you how you can collect this free money. It's, well, and, and it's notable that during this period, Google had a big push to do online health records. I mean, that would be run owned by the individual, but you know, hopefully could integrate with, with uh medical practitioners and eventually they close that whole thing down it's one of the it's one of the things that the google made a big deal about and really tried i actually played around with that system it was not a bad system from my perspective and it totally failed well one of the things as you go deeper on ehr um, which i looked at so i mean one of the problems you have is this large hospital systems growing and taking up smaller providers because if you're a startup and you want to compete in ehr you're much more likely to break into small companies than to big ones and the small ones are going away. So that's a problem. The second thing is if you talk my limited conversations with doctors, the majority of the features they're worried about are the things that get them paid. And so how well a system does billing, how well a system helps with collections. Those are the features they care about the most. And I, Google probably brought a very different mentality to the table. Um, and it's not what people are looking for. Because, and this is my whole point about how the system is just, you know, designed and designed and designed to, to kind of grow and and to get bigger on top of itself. So one of the things I, I thought was interesting when we talked a bit previously was that one of the things that made you optimistic that there might be change in the market and opening in the market was actually the Affordable Care Act. A, a feature of it, yeah. There, there, there were two features. That, of it that I was most excited by. One of them is high deductible plans, which ironically is a feature that I think was not well disclosed and that consumers hated when they realized that, that it was real. Um, but that's a, that's a different issue. But high deductible plans. Um, and then the other one I really liked, um, which I don't think will ever see the light of the day, is the Cadillac tax. And the reason I like the Cadillac tax is because it was the one feature that could start to push employers, you know, 
somewhat out of the system. Um, but but that one appears dead. I, you might know more than me. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's good in, in good shape. But but the, the high deductible plans part is interesting because that really did happen, is happening. And as you say, I do not think that feature was was widely disclosed. I, I know many Republicans who say they oppose Obamacare because it stops high deductible plans from being out there. And I often ask them, like, you can have a $6,000 deductible in Obamacare. Exactly how high do you want the deductible to go? But the the reputation of the bill is that it is pushing against high deductible plans when, in fact, while it, it does increase benefits that do need to be covered – it's allowed for for quite high deductibles, and and for that reason, also pushed towards very narrow networks. Yeah, and narrow networks and high deductibles, which I think actually is is the first thing I've seen that leads towards competition. So obviously, when someone has a high deductible plan, until they hit that deductible amount, they're spending out of pocket. And so, for the first time, perhaps it, I state it broadly. That, that person's heading out into the market as a consumer, um, which is not something they've done before. They, they're spending out of their own pocket and they're making a decision as a consumer. And I think that that is causing very carefully on the margin some really interesting things to happen. So here to me is, is the meat of this discussion. It is a thing that I've been thinking about the most listening to the Obamacare debate, listening to the replacement of Obamacare debate, talk, talking to you. As you say, Obamacare created these high deductible plans, these narrow network plans. Those plans did, um, in some cases, hold premiums further down than, uh, at least until recently, they had been estimated to be. And people hate those plans. They hate them. They do not want to have healthcare that is that exposed to the market. And the, the, the thing that I think is a real challenge here for, for particularly folks who are looking to make this a more consumer-driven system is that if we have learned anything from Obamacare, it's that what people seem to want is just peace of mind. They don't want high deductibles. They don't want to be out there shopping in this way. They want to know that if they get sick, somebody's going to cover it the, the way they do in Medicare, which people like, the way they do in Medicaid, which people like. There's this whole – you get all of this reporting about folks who are in the high deductible plans being mad at the people who are poorer than them who get Medicaid. Yeah, And so to me, the lesson of this has been uh, – I mean I, I was not a huge high deductible plans guy at any point. But the lesson of this has been it is going to be very hard to foist this on, on the public. Then Republicans came and said the problem with Obamacare is these plans have overly high deductibles and we're yeah. going to bring them down. Donald Trump said we're going to bring them down. That's not what their plan does. But when you have both parties now saying the problem with Obamacare is the deductibles are too high, that that to me says something about the plan. And and the reason I think this is important is there's this statistic that sticks in my head. It's from the Federal Reserve, actually, that about 46% of Americans say they do not have enough money to cover a $400 emergency expense, yeah. 400 bucks. And so when you got half the people in, in that position and health is so scary, that that level of financial instability mixed with high deductible plans, that's a very tough mix, a kind of thing that eventually is going to get people in the streets and say, hey, you, you got to give me some relief from this. I, I need to not be so afraid all the time. Yeah. So let me, let me, let me try and separate two things. So you know, there, there are questions of policy, and, and certainly if you ask people what they want, that list could grow infinitely. Right. It'll take everything they can get. So there's there. You're always if you ask, would you like more? You're always going to get an answer of yes. But let's separate that from a second, because from the 
the point I'm making, which is this hopefully not temporary, but maybe temporary move to to high deductible plans is driving change in the marketplace that that is resulting in better care for consumers from my point of view. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll go into that for, for a second. So one of the places where high deductible plans are the highest is the state of Texas. And in, in Dallas in particular, I, I, ha- I happen to know um, urgent care facilities are popping up left and right. And these facilities have way more focus on the consumer and more entrepreneurialism than any general practitioner ever had. And so there's a pediatric care facility that's open from 4 p.m. to midnight. Now, no doctor in our current system that I've ever been aware of has decided, oh, I'm serving children. They're in school. We have parents where both parents work. Maybe I should shift my hours to 4 to midnight. That doesn't happen in our current healthcare system. That happened in this system, though, because someone wanted to differentiate themselves from the next guy. And consumers are paying out of pocket and making choice. There's more parking spaces. It's easier to pull up. They care about net promoter score. They measure the wait time in their facility. They ask for a review after the fact. And satisfaction levels are fantastic. And so I I just separate the point you were making because the point I'm making is that a move towards creating shoppers is creating better care on primary care and just in terms of how we treat the consumer and that consumers are opting into that and finding it interesting and effective. Let me ask you about why the high deductible plan is necessary for that particular kind of innovation. So so backing up on, on how healthcare is financed, let's say you got a plan with basically no deductibles. You got first dollar coverage. Let's just say something, a stylized Medicare plan. You still have to choose where you go. And the places that are going to make money are the places that attract people to come to their office, right? I I feel like the argument for the high deductible is it will make things that are cheaper, which I think is true, right? That, you know, you you deregulate airlines and you get cheaper airlines. You get Southwest, you get Spirit Air, you get stuff that in many ways is much more bare bones. But when people are paying their own money, they're willing to make that trade offset. But but the kind of better care, higher quality care you're talking about – the, the thing where you go to the primary care facility and it's beautiful in there and it's opens at 4 p.m. and it goes to 11 p.m., even in a place where you're not that exposed to the cost, but they just need to attract the bulk of the people who have an insurance card, that feels to me like a perfectly reasonable system to incentivize that kinds of pro-consumer innovation. Well, except I would argue we haven't seen that. I mean, like these things that, that I'm seeing for the first time and as a venture investor get excited about because it's the kind of disruption that, that could lead to, to fundability. It is, in my mind, just happening here for the first time. So I don't think our system has done that. I do think there's a middle ground, though, to this, which is, you know, flexible spending accounts are first dollars not out of your pocket but you do care about the choice you're making um, because you have you have a piece of the economics in the system. So that that's a middle ground approach that could achieve both of what you want and what I'm talking about. So, so it's interesting because that's actually a very good bridge to – you brought up Singapore at the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. And I have a bit of an obsession with the Singaporean healthcare system too. Did, do you want to talk about how that system works from your perspective? Well, the first thing I would say is this. So, so 
the the fascinating thing about Singapore is that they spend about four percent of GDP on healthcare, and we spend somewhere between seventeen and eighteen. And based on the simplest measures that people calculate care, life expectancy, those kind of things, um, there's no demonstrable difference. Um, and people could certainly argue on the margin. Um, and so my biggest, like my brain just can't stop like from wanting to go, Oh my God, they're at one fourth the cost one fourth. Like that is so dramatically eye opening that, our first reaction should be we should study this until we can't stay awake anymore because it is so dramatically different in terms of cost relative to, to output that they must be doing something we don't understand. Instead, when you make this argument to people about Singapore, lots of people go, oh, but it's a small island Asian country. Of They start saying, but you shouldn't look at it. And I'm like, really? Someone's doing something for one-fourth the cost we are, and the reaction is to come up with reasons why you shouldn't compare it? Like, we should just go nuts. We should be like, oh, my God, we should try everything they're doing, every single thing. Also, to, to just build on that point a little bit, every Western European nation and also Canada – and also Israel gets about – it's about half of what we pay. It's not as cheap as Singapore. Yeah. But if we only manage to cut our costs in half, that would also be a big advance. Absolutely. So the idea that there's nowhere we can look for, for some kind of answer here seems pretty – it's always struck me as quite bizarre. Yeah. Now, the part – so there are multiple parts of the Singapore system as you and I have discussed before. The one that I find most fascinating is they make everyone a payer. And the way they do that, except there is a social safety net at the bottom, but for the majority of the populace, depending on your income level, they will uh, provide help from the government on a sliding scale percentage. So if you're if you're extremely well to do, you pay eighty percent of your bill, and if you're if you're down towards the lower income, you pay twenty percent of your bill. But everyone's in the market shopping, and I find that fascinating. Um, and and I'm not. As you know, maybe this comes from the Gold Hill camp, but I'm not surprised that that leads to better execution and 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 cheaper care. So I'm going to give a little bit of a quick Singapore overview for for folks who aren't as read in on it. And and if anybody would like to learn a lot more about this, they can search my name and Singaporean healthcare system. Uh, I've got a long explainer about this on Vox. But so Singapore is a system that that conservatives love. Uh, Ross Douth that has called it the marvel of the developed world, of the wealthy world, I'm sorry. Fox News had this op-ed that, you know, if we want to replace Obamacare, let's copy Singapore's miracle. And what conservatives tend to like in Singapore is the insurance design. So it's a very unusual system. What they do is they have a forced saving account. So the Singaporean government basically diverts 7 to 9.5% of your wages into a compulsory savings account that you can only use for healthcare and in fact only use for the particular healthcare they let you use it for which it, which is interesting so it's a little bit like a health savings account mixed with the the social security payroll tax then they have catastrophic care um again provided by the government you pay premiums that's got like a roughly in our dollars $1500 ish deductible and then there's this meta fund sort of safety net at the very bottom so what conservatives like there is that you've got, uh, as you say, Bill, like everybody's a payer. Um, people are paying first dollar care out of their 
for savings account, then they've you know then they've got catastrophic care over that. You, you really have to shop. But the other thing, and and this is I think such a key thing that gets forgot forgotten or left out about them, it is otherwise a basically government-driven medical system where the government decides pricing. So what you were saying about, you know, the rich paying 80-ish percent, the poor paying 20 percent, that's not happening through insurance. It's happening because the government runs the hospitals and it separates them into these different wards and then it prices them based on how much subsidy you're going to get depending on your income. And drug companies, they can't just charge what they want if they want their uh, drugs to be provided in those wards, and if they want it to be eligible for for that for savings dollars, they have to price it at a level of cost effectiveness that the Singaporean government likes. And so what Singapore is doing, which I think is so interesting and is a reminder that there are much more radical fusions of left-wing and right-wing ideas than people give credit for, is the government is overwhelmingly regulating both supply and prices to keep costs down. But then with those low costs is creating an insurance system where – the average Singaporean is quite exposed to the cost and has a reason to shop. Uh, if you tried to do that with our level of costs, you would have to make people divert like 20% of their income because the, those four savings accounts are also for your kids or also for your for your parents. And you know, that would only pay for you know, some of your care. Uh, so it, it to me it's a it's a reminder that, you know, there there may be more ways to cut this than people realize that if you could if the government is able to act as a price negotiator and get prices down, a lot of things would open up in how we design insurance because people would not be so afraid of financial calamity. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm, as I said earlier, I think one of the problems is that, that people that favor one approach vilify all the others. And for me, it's simply like, Oh my God, they're at one fourth their cost. Like (laughs) we should, we should just do a mirror copy of the whole thing. Like, I don't know why you would pick pieces of it. Like, let's just copy it. <laughs> would be, I, I'm not a policy person, but that's my policy reaction. <laughs> just control C, control V, Singapore. <laughs> yes. So, so, but this goes to, this goes to something I think is hard for entrepreneurs, hard for the government, hard for anybody on either side of the aisle wants to change anything, which is that people are very risk averse about their healthcare. They, they don't want to change doctors. They don't want things to change under them. They're afraid they, uh, and rightfully so, right? When I am sick, the main thing I feel is fear. And so I'm not saying, I don't want to say people, I want to say me here. And and this, I think, is actually a particular problem in some ways, potentially for, for Silicon Valley. There's a, a culture in Silicon Valley that moves, that moves fast and breaks things, right? That's the old Facebook motto. You have a culture like Uber that sort of bum rushes regulators uh, in ways that you know allow them to make big gains in territory, but but really piss people off. And I think folks are maybe open to that in places like social networks or even um, ride sharing. But if you tried to do that uh, in healthcare or if the government tries to do that and takes away what people have, promising they've got something better, uh, folks get real angry. And, and it only takes one or two bad experiences, one or two people who really have something bad happen to them to end that real quick. Yeah. I Well, one thing I would say to that is I don't think there are any opportunities to disrupt healthcare in that type of way, um, simply because the amount, the, the, the sheer force of inertia, the amount of regulation that exists, there's no way um, for someone to rush in and disrupt at that level um, with kind of hackneyed solutions. I, I, I don't think it could happen. It does pose the question, though, that if your assertion is right, that like aversion to change is so high that we're just never going to get a shot on goal, then 
we, we might be stuck. You know, you might be able to do this podcast 80 years from now and, and have all the same discussions. I kind of worry I will be able to. I mean, I'm, I, I hopefully I'll be well enough to do this podcast at, at in 80 years, but, and that would be a real triumph of the healthcare system. Well, let me, let me make this assertion, which I think is, uh, especially if we're in an 80 year time window. Um, I think China is going to be a really interesting thing to watch. You know, I, I have this theory that democracy and capitalism will destroy one another if you give them enough time. And our, our most regulated industries are ones that are least open to disruption. So healthcare, finance, um, telecom. And, and what ends up happening is the incumbents end up writing the rules and, you know, you, you, you just, you kind of bogged down. Um, China and, and Singapore, by the way, you know, are non-democratic capitalistic societies. And so it's actually easier for those types of governments to make wholesale change than it is in our case. Um, and so they could, they can make the types of s- systems that we've been talking about, or they could decide to mirror Singapore or whatever, and everybody just kind of has to take it. Um, but the other thing you have in China, so you haven't had much of a healthcare system. Um, and so you don't have this regulatory framework that makes it very difficult for new entrants or disruptive entrants. Um, but you've got really, you know, successful and talented entrepreneurs. And I think you're going to see some failure like you talk about because there is a, a less regulation, but I think you're also going to see some amazing innovation. I, I am friends with a couple of, of venture capitalists over there and, you know, things like second opinion via telemedicine, those things are happening there way faster than here. There, there's a whole network of specialists in the big cities that do second opinion over telemedicine with with doctors that are in the rural areas for the customer, uh, which is a practice that doesn't even exist here. And, you know, people say, why isn't telemedicine or email more active here? Well, they don't know how to bill for it. And so it doesn't happen. Doctors don't do it because they can't bill for it. <laughs> Eventually figure out how to bill for it. And then you'll have a telemedicine with your doctor. And 80% of the time, you won't need to go into their building anymore. But that's going to happen slower here than there, um, precisely because of where we find ourselves. So that'll be interesting to watch. Tell me more about your theory that democracy and capitalism will eat each other. Why, why will that happen? <laughs> well, um, industries get more regulated and incumbents write the regulation. Like, let's take one of the healthcare things. Let's take HIPAA. So every single consumer thinks HIPAA was written to protect them, from my perspective. Um, you know, HIPAA is an extremely dangerous policy in a day and age where we have the communication tools that we do. I've got a friend who's an ER doctor, and if he's in the middle of an emergency situation and he's got a friend that has the answer and he texts him and asks for help, that's a HIPAA violation, like $50,000 fine. Now, my friend does it anyway. And if your mother were on that table, you'd want him to do it anyway. But they're not supposed to do it. And by the way, they have HIPAA audits. So, so these, there are people that are paid to provide HIPAA audits where they come around and test your systems. And so all this HIPAA this, HIPAA that. And by the way, when Britney Spears' data got disclosed, HIPAA audits tripled at this guy's hospital. So it's nice to know that that Britney's caused such uh, care, <laughs> um, but but 
when you want to build a new system that, that heightens communication so maybe you can get to better answers faster, you run into HIPAA front, left, and center. And, you know, Epic, who's the largest healthcare system or tool, EMR company out there, is notorious for not integrating with people. And I'm certain one of the reasons they clear they don't have to is because they, they hold up HIPAA and say, no, can't do it. And so these regulations people think are, are written to protect themselves are written to protect the system. Uh, this isn't an argument that all regulation is bad. It's just how it's how it matures over time. Yeah, that that I I certainly think there's something to that. We I'll give you I'll give you a non health I'll give you a non healthcare yeah, version please. real quick. So I was a backer of a company called Tropos that we sold, but but they provided tools to let a city bathe their city in Wi Fi. And obviously you can think about why a mayor might find that to be interesting to bathe the city in Wi Fi. And we found tons of mayors that were interested in doing this. And you know, I think it's simple to make the argument that a uh, a a mayor or a city might choose to build a port or a railroad or a highway. Why wouldn't they also build a digital highway if they wanted to for their constituency? But over the years, the telco companies and the cable companies have written law after law after law to make it illegal for that mayor to do that. And if those laws didn't exist when we would get a mayor excited about it, an AT&T lobbyist would show up in, in like the, the, the smallest of places and start lobbying against this from the, you know, from the government. And so, you know, our ability to provide competitive Wi-Fi services, you know, through a city, which seems to be, you know, as based on that, that narrative I just used, seems to be something they should be able to do is blocked by the broader government through rules that were written by the incumbents. So then given given these facts, and, and I agree with you that healthcare is a place of many, many, many rules, and many of them at this point outdated or or not not helpful to new entrants. And given what we said earlier, that this is not a, an area ripe for overwhelming disruption. What are the layers of healthcare that that you think are open to entrepreneurs? What are what are the spaces in the sector that you think people, you know, listening or who are already out there could profitably begin to to hack away at in a, in a useful way. Well, one thing that happens, and I I, I, I want to talk about because we've actually made some bets, and so I'm I'm not a I'm not a hundred percent a pessimist here. I do believe that there are opportunities. Um, one of the things that happens is a lot of startups get pulled into the system, and and that's unfortunate because it turns out that when you've got this thing that's eighteen percent of GDP, and you start following the money flows that you know you enter a market in one place with a very altruistic um, notion that I'm going to change things and as things morph it turns out you're actually just helping the system get bigger and helping people collect if you will as a leech against the system there was a there was a startup that I met with that was in the messaging space and I'm fascinated by messaging just because I think if there were more communication you know, amongst everybody, it should lead to a more efficient world. And I started asking, well, what what is it what is it you're providing? What type of messaging and how much do you get paid for it? And he said, We get paid fifty dollars a message. I'm like, fifty dollars a message? Like <laughs> 
texter like a penny. Like, how, how could you get paid for that? What are you doing? And he was connecting these rehabilitation centers with hospitals. And it turns out the way our insurance has evolved, a hospital can move someone to a rehabilitation center and keep charging. And, and I said, well, what do you tell them? And he goes, when 30 days are up. And I say, why 30 days? He said, well, that's the limit to which you can get, you know, reimbursement against this type of facility. And so, <laughs> you know, and this entrepreneur, I'm sure, started out thinking, I'm going to make the system better. But all they were doing was helping the hospital maximize what they could charge. And I think that kind of stuff happens all the time. Uh, Anne from 23andMe told me that she went through a similar journey when she decided to go into healthcare. And she just noticed startup after startup that entered the system hoping to help. But when you follow the money flows and start start trying to get paid, you, you find you're actually making things worse. So I, I don't want I, I don't want to fund anything like that just because I and it's not like I have some kind of moral high ground. I just that's not interesting to me, like to make it worse. I, I want to hopefully be part of something that makes it better. So then to go back to the question, what are the layers of this that you think are open to, to being made better? Yeah. So I this notion that I brought up, um, which we use the phrase, the consumerization of healthcare, I think that's starting to happen. And I think consumers, you know, have lived through this transformation in other industries. You know, banks were notoriously open from nine to three. Banker hours is a metaphor that that young kids probably won't even know what means anymore, right? But it's because banks used to not have to be competitive with one another and, and they had rules that didn't really think about the customer the way, you know, a normal business would. And I think that trend is starting to change. And so we've made, we've made a few bets that, that relate to that. So one of them is a company called One Medical, which we've been an investor in for probably four or five years now. And One Medical is a premises-based healthcare provider. So it, this isn't a, like a software company, although they have software tools. Um, it is literally like Starbucks. They, they have to put one of these up and they focused on urban areas. So they're, they're, downtown near your place of work rather than being near your home. Um, they have a 24-hour appointment policy and a, I think a one-hour email response policy. And people love it. And it, it, it turns out that it doesn't take that much convenience to stand out like a sore thumb versus what people have grown to um, expect. Let me ask you something about that about that model real quickly because I, I, I know One Medical well. And I actually think they are a fascinating company, but that seems to me to be almost the opposite of the high deductible consumerization of, of medical care. One one medical is you pay more on top of your insurance. They have a lot of people who have employer insurance, including a lot of people I know. Uh, you pay more on top of what you're already paying for insurance to get better service, which is great, right? Like it, one should be able to pay more to, to get more. That, that's all fine. But it does not seem to me to be that the folks with the very high deductibles in Obamacare, like that, that doesn't seem to be where that's going to lead. Yeah. And as I said, we made this investment three or four years ago, and, and, and that was purely a bet that a number of consumers want something more than what they've been getting from their healthcare system. So last week, we announced an investment in a company called Solve, um, which is very new. They just kind of took the covers off for the first time. And so it's early. 
um, but they're fitting more to what you're talking about. And so they've built a network, a marketplace on top of these urgent care facilities. And so this is more like OpenTable or Grubhub or Zillow. Um, and it's a curated set of these people that are operating, um, you know, with full price transparency um, and have this desire to kind of be competitive from a consumerization standpoint. So, like I said, they measure wait times. They want you to be able to come in right away. I think of all the uh, bookings that we've taken, 80% of them have been within a two-hour window. And so no one thinks about seeing their general practitioner unless it's a complete emergency within a two-hour window. But the majority of people that book through Solve are doing it within two hours. And so it is it is trying to put this network layer. You can do things like check in ahead of time as opposed to show up and get handed the large clipboard full of papers to fill out because they know you're going to wait anyway. In this case, you can get that all done up front. And so you walk in and get seen. And, and by the way, after you're done, you get a, you get a communication asking you to review that, that the actual practitioner wants to see uh, because they measure NPS scores, which, which I had talked about in the past. And so this is early that that's operating just in Dallas right now. But I anticipate that there's going to be enough um, competitive providers who are willing to operate with that type of expectation that we'll be able to build this nationwide. Let me ask you something about about the broader thinking around both of these, which we were talking about a little bit earlier around the, the Houston primary care example, too, which is I don't understand really why any of these were not viable businesses in the in a non-high deductible care model. These are all adding convenience um, by, I assume, taking a little bit of a cut. Uh, so in some way, like raising price at least a little bit, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing in this case, but adding convenience onto the system we already have. And, and it, I think, opens this question of why the system just hasn't had at least more of a demand around quality than it's had. Because I, I expect what's going to happen with the high deductible world is people are going to accept less convenience and less quality. Again, it's going to go in this direction of um, if it if the regulator if the regulators allow it, and this is certainly what Republicans want to do by by accelerating the deregulation of very very narrow network, very very high deductible plans that don't cover that much, and and so on and so forth because it's just too expensive. But this stuff. I mean, people have always had the ability to pay a bit more to get something a little bit better, and it's just been a it's been a system resistant to it in large part because people seem very resistant to change and very set in their habits. They go to the same doctor for a long time, et cetera. So, what do you think here is changing? I, it it feels like it may be something different than than what we're talking about. It's totally plausible that they're disconnected. That this is just the time has come, and and these tools, by the way, you know, because if you look forward, like it, like this telemedicine piece for these type of providers is going to become a big piece of it because there's just more convenience for the consumer and it's possible. And so maybe, maybe it was just the time is right. I, I happen to believe that having high deductible plans out there are even people that opt out, right. That are paying the penalty. They're shoppers too. Um, you know, put more people into the frame of mind, where they're making those choices. Um, there's also, look, there's also narrow networks and, and there's like many Kaiser clones popping up. There's one called Scott White in Texas. It's, it's really impressive. That's their own narrow network. And they're actually literally listing plans on the exchange. So they're a, 
they're 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 a wholesale you know carrier provider all in one package and they are competitive from a convenience perspective too and so maybe maybe we're just seeing a whole bunch of alternatives pop up some of which are driven by this consumerization piece and it, that's causing choice and people are opting into it let me give you my theory i think that some of this and, and i think one medical is a good example of it is we are getting a culture to a different kind of convenience. Um, you know, you, you use the Open Table and Grubhub, which I know are different than, than the new thing you funded, but I do think are beginning to habituate consumers to that kind of experience. And so people are beginning to both expect it and, and feel more familiar with it when when it comes around. But the place that I'm curious if you looked into when you were doing your your research is, you know, you've had the Apple Watch and Jawbone and you know all these different things that are essentially bioinformatics. That, that you wear on you. And, and right now they're sort of fun things for the fitness set, right? They're they're for people who are pretty healthy already and enjoy tracking their sleep and quantifying their life and, and all of that. But it's not too hard to imagine some of these things that are much better at helping folks uh, remember to take their medications, for instance, right? A huge issue is, is drug adherence. And, you know, particularly for people who are forgetful or, you know, um, who have mental health issues, something on their wrist that was really good and simple and making sure they took their medicines, or at least reminding them to do it, could make a big difference. You could imagine things that – I don't know the science of this that well, yeah. but there are early markers of things like heart attacks. Um, and possibly there are things people could wear that would help alert them very early. Uh, and if you had a very at-risk population, maybe that would help. That feels to me like where the technology might really make a big difference and both drive down costs and, and drive up quality pretty dramatically. Did you see stuff? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of stuff like that. Most of it's targeted at acute care. And so, you know, whether it's, you'll see startups like that targeted at cardiovascular issues or at diabetes or things like that, um, they all struggle with how do you lean against the American healthcare system. And so some of them end up, you know, trying to sell these solutions through the self-insured employer, right? Which we already talked about is a, a kind of really non-optimal way to, to get out there. Um, some of them are trying to create the right to bill for a digital solution. And that's, it's very new ground. And so if I build an app and a wearable device that if I use you know, I'll monitor my diet better and therefore, you know, I'll reduce my carbohydrate intake and diabetes will improve. Um, getting our insurance carriers to accept paying for that app or service as a billable thing is non-trivial. And there are startups trying to do that right now. Um, it's not the type of bet we've made historically, like, because it's dependent on your ability to get that acceptance. And I don't know if that'll happen or not. It may happen. We may see digital solutions become billable prescriptions. Um, there, there are a number of startups trying to make that happen. And so you have to, even if, even if that technology can be helpful in that way, you still have to figure out a way for it to get charged in the U.S. healthcare system, which is non-trivial. So let me then ask you, I've taken up a, enough of your time here, the, the question we use to, to close out this podcast, which is, what are a couple books uh, on healthcare or anything else that you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Well, as I mentioned, the the, the catastrophic care by uh, by Goldhill, I would read on healthcare. Um, most of the other books I'm 
read recently, you've already had podcasts with the authors, <laughs> like Sapiens I read recently, which I really enjoyed. Um, in healthcare, um, there's a book, there's a whole book on the Singapore system you've probably read. I haven't read yet, but I'm interested to read. Jeremy, Lin, Jeremy Lim's, Is it good? Uh, I think it's Singapore Myth or Miracle. Yeah, I think it's excellent. Yeah. It's actually just a good book on healthcare straight up uh, and, and from a non-American perspective, I think really works. I, I highly recommend that book. Cool. I'll read that. And I listened to all of your podcasts on the subject. No, oh, well, thank you. Um, all right, come on. One, one, one book on technology. Um, well, I, I, there's a set of books that I recommend startups read, um, you know, and some of them are basic, but like there's a, there's a book called startup by Jerry Kaplan where he, um, had a startup that was in the, um, it was like in the tablet space, but it was called go. It was before all the tablets actually were successful and they had the best, uh, investors, the best executives, and it was a colossal failure. And what's most interesting is on the way home every day, he recorded into a microphone. And so he had a log of the story that was particular high fidelity. And then after it was all over, he wrote a book about it. And to me, it's the most real startup journey that's ever been written. Um, and it's, it's actually more real because it didn't work. Um, and all, most of the people in the book have gone on to do other things very successfully, but it was just super eye-opening. So that's one. Crossing the Chasm for Enterprise Plays, you have to read. Innovator's Dilemma is probably the most efficient analysis of why startups are able to disrupt. You know, These are books people know about, but entrepreneurs should read these things like Bibles. One last one, which, which a lot of people have been, been recommending, uh, Phil Knight's Nike book that he just came out with about a year ago is just fantastic. Unbelievable. Bill Gurley, thank you very much. All right, take care. Thank you to Bill for being on the podcast. Thank you to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to my producers, Bert Pinkerton and Peter Leonard. The Ezra Klein Show is, as I 